you need a Bible, one of our ushers will bring you one. All tangled up here. And Carde is going to read the first 38 verses of Luke chapter 1. So please give the Word of God your attention this morning as Carde reads and as we begin as a church to think through this book. Luke, testing. All right, Luke chapter 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among, among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was burned, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the people who, and the, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and he fell upon and he fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your, prayers, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I, am, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with, with her who was called Burn. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So you were, you, you were told you were born 44 years ago on December 9th. Who told you that? So your mom. So your mom told you you were born. Is there any proof? Is there? I mean, she was there, but. So there's a birth certificate. So there's a piece of paper. All right. On the piece of paper, how do you know she just didn't just print it off on her computer? There's a seal on it. Okay, this is interesting. All right, we can stop there. C.S. Lewis says the vast majority of what we know is uh, what he calls uh, knowledge based on authority. Meaning we know this to be true because there's some kind of trusted authority behind it. So I assume your mother is a credible source of authority in your life. So there's, there's not... A, not a whole lot of reason to doubt whether or not she's telling you the truth. Now, that could change. I don't think it would, but of course it could change with somebody. And all of a sudden we'd be getting like, oh, whoa, for some reason my mom had something going on to lie to me about my birthday. And, but for most of us, our mothers, as it relates to our birth date, are trusted sources of authority. In addition, we have these certificates with a little seal on it. It's another trusted source of authority. A lot of what we believe, you guys tracking with me? We believe it based on authority. We believe it because where we've received it from is a trusted authority. 
as we get into the scriptures and as we think about Jesus, the question I want to ask you is this, how do you know the stories of Jesus are true? How do you know this whole, fa- this whole faith is true? Well, it's very similar. We know it's true because we have a trusted authority. Meaning, the Christian faith is not a faith that we just are called, told to believe blindly. It's not just some sort of mystical idea that one person received and passed on and said, I just want you to believe this. Unlike Islam, for example, where one dude named Muhammad gets a vision that he passes on, it can't really be verified, it's just his word. Well, the Christian faith is not like that. The Christian faith, unlike, say, Buddhism, which is really a a philosophy, an idea that some people came up with that passed on, a, a way of life. Well, it's not based on historical events. The Christian faith is based on historical events. It's based on things that actually happened. It's based on history. Now, we're we're getting into this book called John. It's a gospel, uh, John, Luke. (laughs) I've already already slipped up. We're in the wrong book. Uh, We're in the book of Luke. We're going to start a series today in this gospel. Luke begins this book... with this strong sense of confidence in what he's talking about. It's a book in some ways for skeptics. He writes it in the first couple verses there, we see he writes it to a man named Theophilus in verse 3. Now that's the same person that's addressed in the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, most theologians believe, and the church historically believed, go together. Written by the same person, Dr. Luke. And is written to a man named Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? We don't know. Moving on. (laughs) He was Greek, we know that by his name, but that's about it. We don't know who Theophilus is. People have speculated, you know, Paul's locked up at the time. Paul's in Rome. People have speculated maybe Theophilus was part of the court. And this was written as a court document as an appeal for the innocence of Paul, the apostle who's locked up being tried by Rome. It's very possible, but we don't really know who Theophilus is. But we know that he must be a man who has some questions, who Luke believed would take the time to actually read these two books. So I want to say, first, Luke is a book that's written for skeptics. Meaning a a skeptic in the best sense of the word, like somebody who just simply doubts what's being accepted by others. Uh, Somebody who has questions. Somebody who wants something verified. It's also a book written for Christians. As Luke writes, he writes with this sense of confidence, and he writes in order that we might have confidence in what we believe. Luke is the assistant to the Apostle Paul. Paul has been locked up. 
what's Luke doing during these years, these months, these weeks that just keep passing by? He, what's he doing? He's studying. He's researching. He's interviewing. He's asking questions. My point is this, again, the Christian faith is a faith based on events that's verifiable. This is a man who wanted to verify these things that he has heard, and so he spent a lot of time, and as he, as he writes, he, he tells us, just as those who were from the beginning, verse 2, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, verse 3, it might seem good, having followed all things closely to write an orderly account. This is not just somebody's haphazard ideas of what happened to Jesus. This isn't just simply hearsay. This is a man who has done his research and is writing down in a very careful and orderly manner an account of details of events that took place which are verifiable, which are trustworthy. Luke wants Christians to have confidence that what they believe is true. What we believe is based on trusted authorities. Now, even more than just simply giving us details of an account of what happened, what we see in Luke are promises. Promises from God to people. As Luke begins his orderly account, he begins with two characters, Zechariah and Mary. Each of them are people who have received promises. And in some ways, chapter 1 is kind of parallel stories that come together. Zechariah, who was he? Zechariah was a priest. He was part of the Levitical line. It means that he served the temple. It was Zechariah is married to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the cousin for the second character who we're going to talk about. Now, Elizabeth was barren. Uh, she's unable to have children. They're up in years, meaning, even aside from the fact that she was barren her entire life, uh, they're too old now to have children. Now, one day, Zechariah is serving at the temple. And this is the story that Luke wants us to first pick up. Look at verse 7. They have no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in their years. Skip down to verse 15. Now, Zechariah is serving in the temple. He goes into the temple to do his work. And while he's inside the temple, all of the people are outside of the temple, meaning he's alone in the temple. An angel appears to Zechariah 
And the angel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to get pregnant with a baby. Now this, according to the angel, is going to bring Zechariah a whole lot of joy. And we see the reason in verse 15. For he, the baby, will be great before the Lord. Skip down to verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is a baby who's coming that's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. This is a baby who's coming that's, that's going to uh, till the soil, as it were. Get the ground ready for the seed that is to be planted. What he's going to do is preach repentance. And this baby, as he grows up, is going to turn hearts back to God. And this is to bring Zechariah a whole lot of joy. What I want to focus on, though, is Zechariah's response to the vision that he receives in the temple. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So in verse 24, Elizabeth gets pregnant, but we got to back up a little bit and remember, he didn't believe that would happen. As the vision, as, uh, as, or as this angel appears to uh, Zechariah, he doesn't believe it. How can this be? It's impossible. Well, let's move on. We see the second character, Mary, in the story. Now, if you thought the first pregnancy was pretty miraculous, an older, barren woman getting pregnant, this one even more so. For this woman is a virgin. Now, if you're an adult, you understand why that's pretty shocking, a virgin getting pregnant. Uh, if you are a child or a youth, if you've had the talk with your parents, you understand also why that's shocking. And if you don't understand, ask your parents. <laughs> and it's time to have the talk. What a wonderful way to... Why, uh, why is it so amazing that Mary was a virgin she got pregnant? Hmm. Now's the time. Honey... <laughs> She's a virgin. I mean, you know, in, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and we hear the virgin, like, this, sometimes our doctrines become so normal in our mouths and in our churches and from our pulpits, which is good. I, don't, I, I hope that they're no, normal. Yet at the same time, sometimes we just forget how amazing this actually is. It's a young girl, she's a virgin. And she receives a, a visit from an angel named Gabriel. And this angel, Gabriel, tells this young virgin that she also, like her cousin Elizabeth, is going to become pregnant. The virgin birth. 
The virgin birth, by the way, this isn't a sermon necessarily about the virgin birth, but we have to mention the virgin birth because it's part of our text. We got to believe the virgin birth. It's very important to believe that Mary was born, or I'm sorry, that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why? Number one, because the Bible says so. The Bible teaches that. Uh, For anybody to conjure up any other idea that she was not a virgin would actually go against what is plainly written in the text. And secondly, I do think it helps us understand a little bit about Jesus' full humanity and his full divinity. He's born in in an unusual manner. So she receives this word from the angel Gabriel that she also is going to have a baby. Now look at verse 34. She responds to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Well, good question. Verse 35, the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, I I, I get the fact that some of this stuff just sounds ridiculous. Some of these ideas, some of these things that we believe, they sound ridiculous. And I think there's a sense in which we need to admit this does sound ridiculous. As as well as simply this, I think we need to recognize that the, the very Bible characters themselves, when they heard these things, thought it sounded ridiculous. The Bible is made up of people just like you and me who didn't expect this, whatever this is because that's ridiculous. That's impossible. Have you ever considered the fact that it could be that the very reason these things were written down and recorded is because they were ridiculous. And ridiculous things happened, came true. Well, that's what the angel says in verse 37. In in lieu of Mary's response, the angel responds, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is outside of the realm of possibility with God. There's two lessons in this text that we need for today. Number one, we must believe God's promises. We must believe believe God's promises. Has anybody ever promised you something and they failed to come through with their promise? How many times has somebody said, I'll get you that for Christmas, and it never happens? I swear, if, if, if everybody has told me, I'm going to get you that for Christmas, Joel, if, if I, I wouldn't need anything, Right? How many times has that rolled off on your own lips? I'm going to get you that for Christmas. How many times have you made a promise to somebody that that didn't come through? Well, at the same time, don't we understand the importance of keeping promises for that same reason? When I first started 
pastoral ministry here in Baltimore. I was meeting up with a mentor, a guy who grew up in the city and, uh, and, and had, a, had a pastor impact his life. And, and I asked him, I said, as, as a young pastor here in the city, give me some advice. Like, as I think of reaching out to young dudes and, and you know, hoping to see some young people grow up to know the Lord in the same way that you do, give me some advice. And I'll never forget his advice. He said, when you make a promise to somebody, keep it. He, he said, I mean, like, for instance, when you tell a guy you're going to pick him up at 10, be at his house at 10 to pick him up. It will blow their mind. Because nobody keeps promises. Because everybody says, I'm going to be there, and they never show up. Everybody says, I'm going to help you, and they never come through to help. I'll be at your game. I'll be home for Christmas. I'll pick you up tonight. Promise after promise after promise that has failed. Listen, this isn't what the text is about, but just a word on promises. If you want to impact somebody's life in this city, be a promise keeper. Just simply show up when you say you're going to show up. Now, this has to do with the trusted authority that we want to be. And the very fact that God is a promise-making and then a promise-keeping God makes him what? A trusted authority in our own lives. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. If you believe that, just simply say amen. All through the scriptures we see this. God made a promise to Adam and to Eve, and he kept it. God made a promise to Noah, and he kept it. God made a promise to Abraham, and he kept it. God made a promise to Isaac, and he kept it. God made a promise to Jacob, and he kept it. God made a promise to Joseph, and he kept it. God made a promise to Moses, and he kept it. God made a promise to Joshua, and he kept it. I could go through the rest of the Old Testament. The Bible, in so many ways, is a book about God's promises that he makes to his people and evidence, credible, verifiable, historical facts. God has kept his promises to his people. God is a trusted authority. Which means then, when God makes a promise to you, unlike everybody else, you must believe the promises that God makes. Well, I have trouble believing the promises that God makes because my dad broke so many promises to me. That was your dad. Your dad is not a trusted authority in this situation. Look at God. Look at God. Read his word. God is a trusted authority, and when he speaks, when he gives us a promise, it's a promise that we not only can believe, but a promise that we must believe. Look at the differences and the similarities between Mary and Zechariah. First, the similarities. Both of them received a visit from an angel. Both Mary and Zechariah responded with fear when they saw the angel. 
In both situations, the angel told Mary and Zechariah, chill out, relax. I'm not going to harm you. I'm an angel of the Lord. Both Mary and Zechariah are given a reason for the angel's visit. Both Mary and Zechariah are told this shocking news that there is going to be a baby in a womb. Now listen to this. Both Mary and Zechariah respond with a question. How can this be? It's actually amazing how similar their questions are. In verse 18, Zechariah says, How shall I know this, for I am old, and my wife is barren? He asks a question, and he gives the reason for his question. Mary, in verse 34, asks the angel, How shall this be, since I am a virgin? She asks the question, and she gives the reason for the question. So what's the difference between Zechariah and Mary? Well, the difference is this. Mary believes and Zechariah doesn't. Behind Zechariah's question, how can this be, there is unbelief. In other words, oh, how can this be? It's beyond our time. I don't believe it. But beneath Mary's question, there is belief. Mary's just curious. How is this possible? How is this going to happen? You see the difference between the two questions. One responds with belief, and the other one responds with unbelief. Now, how do we know that? In verse 20, we see that the angel disciplines Zechariah for his unbelief. Because of his unbelief, Zechariah's mouth is going to be closed up, and he's going to be mute. But in verse 38, we see Mary responds, instead of unbelief, she says, Oh, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then in verse 45, if you want to look ahead there, as Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth states, Blessed is she who believed. I don't think she says it, Certainly not recorded, but I bet you Elizabeth is thinking, unlike my husband, Zechariah. <laughs> like she was saying something there without saying it, you know what I'm saying? Let's compare these two. Zechariah is a priest, all right? Let's not forget who he was. He's a priest. Zechariah is older. Mary is young. She's single. She's unmarried. She's betrothed, yes, but her husband's a blue-collar worker. He ain't a priest. Zechariah has been studying the Scriptures for a lifetime. Mary has only been able to read for maybe eight or ten years. Listen, our response of faith has nothing to do with our age. 
Your response of faith has nothing to do with your gender, with how many years you've been studying the scriptures, with your position in life, with your status in the church. One thing we see here is, is that God comes to both in the same way, and the one who you would expect to believe doesn't believe. In contrast, the one who's painted as lowly and humble is the one who believes and is called blessed. Listen, don't think just because you've been in the Word your whole life that you are in any more of a position to believe the promises of God than the person across the street who just heard the name of Jesus. Don't think just because you grew up in church that you have arrived at some kind of pedestal and that you are just from now on smooth sailing on my way to heaven. I don't need to fight against Satan's attacks of unbelief in my life. I've got it. Listen, friends, Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he can make you a miserable Christian. And he can make you a miserable Christian no matter how high you think you are. No matter how good you think you are. How mature in the faith you think you are. He can make you miserable through tempting you toward unbelief. Now, on the flip side, just because you're young in the room, kids, don't believe that God can't inspire faith in your own heart. God calls you to believe in the same way that he calls me to believe. Just because you're new to the faith, don't, don't believe that God has no place for you in his kingdom. Oh, just because you've wasted years, years of your life, you gave to, to, to sin and to Satan, to destruction. You feel like you've come to Christ so late in life, and you're just now believing. Don't think that God can't use you in some profound and powerful way. What I see here happening as Luke is, I think, intentionally uh, showing us this parallel story to compare and contrast Zechariah and Mary is this, is that it's often the lowly that get it. It's those who come in humility. Those are the ones that God calls blessed, that God chooses to use. Now, some of us, our present circumstances seem so bad that we say, I, I can't believe the promises of God. I mean, think of their circumstances. In both situations, they were facing circumstances, physical, external circumstances, that would lead them to doubt, at the very least, this promise of a baby in the womb. And sometimes we look around at our present circumstances, 
hearing the promises of God through his word, and we say, yeah, I hear that, but I can't believe it because of what's going on in my life. Family, in what way do your present circumstances pose a challenge to your belief? In what way are we allowing the world, the problems of the world around us or in our own life to be used by Satan to tempt us toward disbelief? Listen, the lowly, those who are broken, those who are humble, those who are saying, I I don't have anything in my hands to bring, are the ones who believe. And it's because of Jesus. Let's not forget the baby in in Mary's womb. Look at verse 32. This baby that is in Mary's womb is going to be called great. Everybody say great. Great. He's going to be great. He's going to be mighty. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to have a throne that lasts forever. Which means this one is going to be the trusted authority who's sitting on the throne, and it's a throne that lasts forever. The eternal king. Now listen, because of the baby that's in this womb, we can believe. Because of the baby in this womb, those who are most broken among us can believe. For the baby in this womb has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God. He's come to us. He's died for us in our place. He's risen for us. If you're not a Christian, trust in Him. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. And what we discover is that all of the promises that God has made His people throughout Scriptures because of this baby are now ours. So because of him, we trust the promises of God. Let me give you a couple of them. I will never leave thee, Hebrews 13, 5. I am your shield, Genesis 15, 1. I will strengthen you, Isaiah 41, 10. I will help you, Isaiah 41, 10. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, John 10, 4. I know the thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, Thoughts of peace and not of evil. Jeremiah 20, verse 11. Come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. No good thing will he withhold from them that work uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. 1 Samuel 12, 22. All things work together for good to them who love God, Romans 8, 28. And I am making all things new, Revelation 21, 5. Listen, the Bible is a Bible, or is a book of promises that God gives his people. And because of Jesus Christ, this baby in the womb, we are adopted as his children, as his family, 
And we are given these promises. And it's not optional, family. We must believe the promises of God. Now, this leads me to my second point. God's promises, when believed, result in praise. God's promises, when believed, result in praise. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the famous justice, he said once that at some point he would have considered becoming a minister if it wasn't for the fact that all of the ministers he knew as a child reminded him of undertakers. Uh, that can be true. Listen, sometimes Christians act like we are the most miserable of all. Sometimes we got pastors who chose the wrong profession. They should be working at the funeral parlor. Like, no sense of joy in life. No sense of happiness in these truths. Sometimes we as Christians, we've got our doctrine, we've got the things that we uh, uh, believe, but our joy doesn't look any different than the world around us. I'm concerned about a lot of Christian circles today. as it relates to our joy in the promises of God. Meaning, in some circles, you've got people who are able to muster up a whole lot of praise, but it's a fleshly kind of emotion. It's emotion that's disconnected from any doctrine. It's emotion that just is mustered up by the way that the piano plays, or the organ plays, or uh, uh, the way that the, 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 the preacher is able to tell a powerful story. Listen, when I first started preaching, I used to not use any illustrations in my preaching because I thought, I just want the doctrine that I'm preaching about to touch people's emotions, not the stories that I tell. I do tell illustrations now. I think that they're helpful and can be useful in explaining the text. But I still believe that, though. I want the doctrine that we're preaching I want the promises of God that we're looking at to well up feelings of emotion, not the stories I tell. And sometimes people need that because they don't have any doctrine in their life to well up any kind of good emotion. But then on the flip side, you get some people who have, it seems like, good doctrine. Like they believe all the right things. They've got their theology books and they've read Grudem 349 times. That's a systematic theology book for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about. You get people who, who, who are uh, so, cons they see themselves as like watchdogs. Like don't touch my theology. Don't touch my doctrine. You can't even tell a testimony around this person without them, this person critiquing your theology. <laughs> now, wait a second. Can we go back? Their bar for membership is so high that nobody can join their church, and they're proud of that fact. And they have no joy. 
often these people are cranky. These people are uh, not fun to hang out with. There's no praise in their mouth. Listen, I'm concerned. Because I think scripturally what we see is that God's promises are connected with our praise. Meaning we don't have true praise without understanding the doctrines, the promises of God. And at the same time, we cannot explore the beauty of God's promises and His, His truths without that leading us to praise. I believe that we often are people of despair because we don't think we have anything to look forward to. I think a sense of hopelessness is often connected with our lack of praise and our lack of joy. For example, my, my brother Ben, when he was younger, about 10, 11 years old or so, I remember him, he's like a depressed little kid. I remember him occasionally, he was all down, and my mom would say, what's, what's the matter? And he would say, I don't have anything to look forward to. You know how some things just stick in your head? It's stuck in my head. I don't have something to look forward to. You see, having something to look forward to is, is hope. Hope leads us to joy, and joy, when it's complete, leads us to praise. Let me show it to you. So as we get back into the story here this morning, we see Zechariah. He doesn't believe, and what happens to Zechariah? He's mute. He can't say anything. He actually cannot praise God. God takes away his ability to praise him. In contrast, though, Mary, when she receives this word, she responds with belief, and in verses 46 through 55, Mary starts singing. And we're not going to take time to go through her song or Zechariah's song later on because we preached about that two years ago. You can find those messages on our website. But Mary sings a song of praise as she believes the promise of God. That's her response. And then it happens again. So later on in the story, in verses 63 and 64, the baby's born, John the Baptist, born to Zechariah, and what, is, what happens to Zechariah? It says his mouth is open and he blesses God. He now believes, and he responds with praise. And now as soon as Zechariah can speak, what does he do? He sings his own song of praise in verses 68 through 79. My point is this. The promises of God, when believed, result in praise. The promises of God, when believed, result in praise. C.S. Lewis once said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of 
compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Listen, when we hear something true about God and about who we are because of Jesus Christ, and we receive a promise of God such as your sins are forgiven. Listen, these things, these truths ought to lead us to joy. And I agree with Lewis. What Lewis is saying is this. When you have joy, that naturally leads to praise. Your joy is incomplete without it. Your joy in your spouse, Lewis's example, is incomplete without expressing your joy to your spouse. Does that make sense? Listen, if you are receiving the word of God, then you ought to be a person who has joy and therefore praise. Meaning if you don't have praise in your mouth, you've got to ask yourself whether or not I have joy in my heart. And if we don't have joy in my heart, we need to keep taking it back and ask ourselves, have I really believed the promises of God? Where is your joy? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in that baby born in a manger. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. This ought to inspire some kind of joy in your life, in your heart. We so often look for joy in every other place. It's not to be found. You can try finding joy in something such as unbelief, but you won't find it there. One man who was uh, a committed unbeliever his entire life, by the end of his life he says, I wish I had never been born. There's no joy in unbelief. There's no joy in pleasure. Seeking joy, a life of joy and pleasure, leads you to health problems, STDs, no friends, no money. You can't find your joy in money. One man who had millions of dollars toward the end of his life says, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. There's no joy in riches. There's no joy in fame. Someone who works in Hollywood once said, you know who the most miserable people are? It's those in Hollywood who have made it. And they still feel the same way. There's no joy in military glory. Alexander the Great, after he had conquered all the known world, died in depression, and he said there are no more worlds to conquer. Listen, there's nothing this world can give you that provides real joy. Real joy is found in Christ, and in Christ alone. 
When I was uh, a youth pastor back over on the eastern shore of Maryland, I lived there for five years, and there was a woman in the church uh, that I served at. Her name was Miss Tuggy. She was 100 years old. She lived until 101, I believe. When she was 100, I would visit her regularly. I just, at first I thought, this is just kind of cool. Like, how many times can you visit a 100-year-old? So uh, she, was, she couldn't walk. She still lived at home with her sick older son, who was, whose health problems were about as bad as hers, but he took care of her. Um, she couldn't walk. Uh, her, her body was breaking down. She was blind. Uh, she could hardly hear anything. She had one health problem. I mean, you name a health problem, she had it, all right? So what happens when you're 100? We're like cars, you know? Your car just starts breaking down. But I remember I would go to visit her, and I would go back, and I'd go back, and I, and it, and it, it, I would go to visit her not just simply because it was cool to visit a 100-year-old lady, Pretty soon I was going back because I was getting encouraged every time I would visit with Miss Tuggy. I would walk into her house, and there she is sitting in the same spot. She'd always sit with her respirator on, and she would, I would come in, and she would ask who's there, and I would tell her, and I would ask her how she's doing. She would grab my hands, and she would say, Oh, I am so happy. I just want to give Jesus praise. I just want to praise God this afternoon. And I, and I, and I, would, I would ask her, I'm like, Miss Tuggy, what are you happy about? You know, she couldn't talk about her health. She couldn't talk about her eyesight. She couldn't talk about uh, her hopes and dreams being, you know, fulfilled in the world. She couldn't talk about a future in this world. She couldn't even talk about the health of her own son. What do you have, what, what, what is it that makes, and, and she would say, honey, it's the promises of God. They're all mine. I have him. And that's what she would always say, I am so happy. I am so happy. I just want to praise God. Listen, she praises God more than some of you sitting in church this morning. Some of you got able bodies. You were able to get up. You got eyesight. You could see your way here. You had some nice food this morning, maybe. A little cup of coffee. You sit here acting like you're miserable. Family, believe the promises of God. When we get into the Word, when we get into Luke, which, by the way, is very good history that will never be accepted as history by society. Why? It's because what, what it demands of, of us, if we accept this as history, it changes our life. It changes everything. As we study this book of Luke, I, I hope that it changes you. It changes you as the Spirit confirms it and as you believe it. As we hear the word of God, friends, receive the word of God. Believe the word of God. And let the word of God inspire and well up springs of joy in your life. 
And no matter what you got going on in your life, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how impossible this world seems, may we be able to say with Miss Toogie, I just want to praise God. I'm so happy. I'm so happy for who God is and for what he's done for me. He's washed my sins away, and I have Jesus Christ. He's my older brother. He loves me, and I love him. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We ask, God, that as we hear your word, that we would receive your word that we will believe it, and as we believe it, that we would have joy in life, and that our joy might be complete as we lift up our voices in praise, praising you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.